Hello, my name is Clay Catlin, and this is the worst job ever. Welcome to the first episode of The Worst Job Ever, where we will look through history to discover the most dangerous, unpleasant, unsanitary, and bizarre jobs that human beings have ever worked. Hopefully we come away with a more sympathetic opinion on history's most unfortunate workers. For the first episode, we will be traveling to England and Tibet to learn about two historical jobs related to death and funerary practices. What if I was to offer you a job? All you have to do is come over to my house, need a little bit of bread, and I'll pay you for it. Would you do it? What if I also told you that the bread you have to eat had just been resting on the chest of a corpse? or that by eating it, you gave up all hope of a heavenly reward after your death. Would you still do it? If you answered yes to this question, you're not the first one. In rural villages and small towns across the British Isles during the 17th and 18th century, people enlisted the services of sin eaters when a loved one had died. In those days, Christian worship was still highly differed from region to region, and practice and belief were often heavily linked to local customs or earlier rituals. So, for example, Christians from Britain, Russia, Spain, or Ethiopia would generally have all agreed that there was a God who created life and that Jesus died for our sins. But the day-to-day way they expressed these beliefs were highly regionalized and could differ like night and day from each other. This same colorful array of religious ideas extended to death and the afterlife. Many Christian villagers from across England from the 17th to 19th centuries seemed to have believed that when a person died, their sins stayed within their body. With these sins still weighing against the person's soul, the deceased was unable to move on into heaven and would continue to exist in this world as a lost spirit doomed to wander the countryside endlessly. Obviously, this understanding of the afterlife would naturally be incredibly upsetting to the loved ones of the dead person, which is where the expertise of the sin eater comes in. Working as a sort of freelance soul releaser, the sin eater would physically consume a piece of food that spiritually contained the sins of the deceased. This piece of food, usually a crust of bread, absorbed these sins by resting on the chest of the corpse. By consuming the bread, the sin eater ritualistically takes on the burdens of the deceased and sets their soul free into the afterlife, unweighted by their earthly transgressions. After completing the meal, the sin eater would recite a quick incantation, letting the family know that the soul of their dead loved one had successfully passed on, which allegedly went as follows. I give easement and rest to thee now, dear man. Come not down the lanes or in our meadows, and for thy peace I pawn my own soul. Amen. Afterwards, the sin eater would be paid a paltry sum of change and would quickly be on their way. The 17th century writer John Aubrey describes a personal account of sin eating in his religious customs book, Remains of Gentilism and Judaism. In the country of Hereford, it was an old custom at funerals to hire poor people who were to take upon them all the sins of the party deceased. One of them, I remember, lived in a cottage on Rose Highway. He was a long, lean, ugly, lamentable, poor rascal. The manner was that when the corpse was brought out of the house and laid on the bier, a loaf of bread was brought out and delivered to the sin eater over the corpse, as also a maser bowl of maple full of beer, which he was to drink up, and sixpence in money, in consideration whereof he took upon him, ipso facto, all of the sins of the defunct, and freed him or her from walking after they were dead. By participating in this ritual, the sin eater would pawn off their own souls in hopes of getting into heaven for a small earthly reward. In the opinion of local religious moors, the small meal and sum of change that sin eaters would gain from the service promised eternal damnation after death. If the unatoned personal sins of a single individual would cause them to turn into a restless phantom after death, one can only imagine what fate would be in store for the sin eater, whose job was to take on the sins of an entire village. For this reason, sin eaters were typically the destitute, impoverished, and miserable, drawn from the margins of local society. 
people who would risk any punishment for a small meal and a few coins. This shows an additional class dynamic in the ritual of sin eating. Additionally, the weight of their burden made them societal outcasts, despised and feared by villagers who believed that sin eaters became progressively more and more evil as they consumed more and more souls. We can see some of this in a piece of writing by archaeologist Matthew Mogridge, who described his experience with the sin eater in 1852. He then muttered an incantation over the bread, which he finally ate, thereby eating up all of the sins of the deceased. This done, he received his fee of two shillings, sixpence, and vanished as quickly as possible from the general gaze. For as it was believed that he really appropriated to his own use and behoof the souls of all those over whom he performed the above ceremony, he was utterly detested in the neighborhood, regarded as a mere pariah, as one irredeemably lost. Indeed, sin eaters were detested in the communities they lived and worked. Villagers could not imagine what would compel a human being to willingly increase one's own burden of souls. Many thought that sin eaters were servants of the devil or were possessed by dark spirits. This is tragically ironic, considering that local religious customs holds that the actions of a sin eater was the only way to send souls of deceased neighbors, friends, and family to paradise, saving those who would normally be cursed to wander the earth due to the weight of their own transgressions. A 1911 entry in the Encyclopedia Britannica described the practice of sin eating, giving us context to the hatred and fear villagers felt towards sin eaters. The earlier form seems to have been more realistic, the sin eater being taken into the death chamber and a piece of bread and possibly cheese being placed on the breast of a corpse by a relative, usually a woman. It was afterwards handed to the sin eater, who ate it in the presence of the dead. He then handled his fee and at once hustled and thrust out of the house amid execrations and a shower of sticks, cinders, or whatever missiles were handy. Sin eaters provided an incredibly important service in the process of burial, mourning, and consolation in British villages. They gave families the comfort of being able to move on, knowing their loved one was now living forever in the kingdom of God, perfect, innocent, and without sin. They could sleep easier knowing they had done the right thing, knowing that that night, as they slept, the soul of their dearly departed would have passed on from the struggle and ugliness of this world. Conversely, in their minds, the sinners were now be infected with another sinner's heavy burden, pushing them one more step away from society and God, and one step closer to darkness, perversion, and inevitable hellfire. Perhaps the sin eater reveals a bit about how we as humans think about sins. We want our loved ones to go to heaven, to find their eternal reward, but do we really think they deserve it? Can we ever feel sure about our own fate while being weighed down by our evils? How terrible do we think our own sins to be that the only ones who would willingly take them on are agents of evil? As for the sin eaters themselves, their existence raises an interesting but tragic question. Would we give up on our heavenly reward for a little more time on earth? True, some sin eaters surely did not believe that what they were doing was anything more than getting paid to eat some bread and drink some beer, likely laughing at the superstition of local people in the same way that learned gentlemen like Aubrey and Moggridge did. But some, perhaps only a few, must have felt the extreme gravity of what they were doing. Perhaps a bit of money could keep the child of a sin eater from the brink of starvation. A sin eater might be a worried parent, hoping that through their blasphemous occupation, their children could reach adulthood, find better lives for themselves, and perhaps arrive at the heavenly destination that they were doomed to never reach. Taking on someone else's sins could mean another day with a dying parent, or another night in the arms of a sick lover. Can we say we wouldn't do the same? Sin eating obviously died out as religious conventions reached distant villages. The last sin eater, a folk hero named Richard Munslow, allegedly died shortly after the turn of the 20th century. Local legend claims Munslow, unlike most sin eaters, was a wealthy farmer whose life was ruined by the death of his children and began sin eating in the hopes of allowing as many souls as possible to reach heaven, sacrificing himself in the process. Munslow is romanticized today as selfless, compassionate, and deeply faithful. And his modern legacy ensures that, whether he existed or not, public opinion across the UK on the lives of sin eaters has been positive and sympathetic. Modern scholars believe the custom's origin could lie in pre-Christian funerary practices or in the biblical ritual of the scapegoat. 
Historical funerary meals similar to sin eating can be found across the world, although most are highly different than the British version and entail family members eating a meal to take on the positive attributes of a dead loved one rather than a stranger eating a meal to take on their sins. Over the next few days, I hope that you think of the sin eater. Somebody should be. When you think of something that you did that you now deeply regret, that you would only share with your closest confidants, maybe you should ask yourself, if I had the chance, would I put this burden on someone else? Would I lighten my own mental load by putting these feelings on another person? Or is it my own burden to bear? Our other job for this episode takes us across the world to Tibet. Tibet, as I'm sure many of you know, is a highly mountainous region that contains the tallest peaks of the Himalayas and is also the center of one of the oldest and most important schools of Buddhism, Vajrayana. Of interest to me is a specific traditional funerary practice that is historically associated with Tibetan Buddhism and is still occasionally practiced in Tibet today, what is commonly known in English as a sky burial. A sky burial essentially entails bringing a naked corpse to a mountaintop and exposing it to the elements. As the body decomposes, carrion birds like vultures will feast on the flesh, ultimately picking the bones clean. To Tibetan Buddhists, souls are freed from the physical body after death, and the remaining corpse is nothing but a lifeless husk with no real connection to the spirit of the deceased, which is put to better use by feeding other life forms than languishing forever in a coffin or urn. Although this is out of the norm from a Western perspective, it also seems a little bit romantic in a way. That your last act on this earth is one of generosity, and that your death allows other creatures to live, sort of directly giving back to this natural circle of life. The reality, of course, like most things, is much more complicated than that. I don't want to go too into death into sky barrels themselves because I'm hardly at all knowledgeable in the field, and the last thing I want to do is generalize or be disrespectful about things that I don't fully understand. What seems agreed upon is that the practice of sky burials are first historically recorded in 12th century Buddhist texts, and they likely emerged both because of Tibetan Buddhist beliefs about death as well as Tibet's physical characteristics. Most of Tibet is too elevated for trees to easily grow, making lumber scarce and cremation not viable. Also, Tibet's rocky, frozen ground does not allow for deep digging, making ground burials also not viable. I should also clarify that what I'll be talking about are official ceremonial sky burials known as Yator. This distinction is important as, for most of Tibet's history, people lived in remote villages or practiced nomadic lifestyles. For these people, sky burials were more informal methods of burial, disposing of a dead body before traveling on or making sure a corpse that could potentially carry disease is far from the village. This method of sky burial usually entails leaving a corpse on a mountaintop and never returning. For ritualized yators, religion and spirituality plays a large role, and workers called rogyapas make sure the proceedings go smoothly. After prayers and blessings of the temple, which constitutes the official religious part of the funeral, a rogyapa breaks the spine of the corpse and folds the body in half so it can easily be carried on someone's back. A family member takes hold of the corpse and the hike to the burial site begins. Once the funeral party reaches the mountaintop, the rogyapas get to work preparing the body for scavengers. They light incense to attract carrion birds and begin to butcher the corpse, slicing off pieces of skin and meat and throwing it to the hungry crowd that is beginning to form around the funeral. Some accounts describe the rogyapas slicing off individual limbs. Others describe them cutting out organs and throwing them to the crowd of scavengers. Still others claim they remove inedible parts of the body, such as hair, and dispose of them. Regardless, once the ravenous crowd subsides and the bones have been picked clean, the duties of the rogyapas are halfway done. From there, they smash the bones and grind them into a fine powder. The resulting bone dust is then given to the less aggressive birds, like crows or ravens, to eat. Once nothing corporeal remains of the body, the job of the regyapa is officially done, and the funeral party descends back down into the village. The regyapas remain on the mountaintop for a little while longer, 
washing their tools and bodies, gathering the clothes of the deceased, and perhaps saying a few quiet prayers for the soul whose body they have just returned to the sky. Both Rigyapas and Sin Eaters are instrumental in helping the deceased move on. Although the Sin Eaters' responsibility is a spiritual one, while the Rigyapas is practical. Sin Eaters free the soul from its sins, while the Rigyapas free the earth of an empty husk. Yator funerals are also quite different in tone than a Solomon Grimm English funeral in the 17th century must have been. For one, people from across the village, completely unrelated to the deceased, come to watch the ceremony, as Tibetan Buddhism holds that we should get used to the inevitability of death the best we can while we are still alive. Additionally, Rogyapas talk, joke, and laugh with each other while slicing through skin and grinding bone. The idea here is that a positive, light-hearted atmosphere at Yator will make it easier for the souls of the deceased to pass on to the next step. This, coupled with a lack of importance religiously placed on a corpse, makes the Yator a practical step in the last cycle of life, rather than an event of grief and mourning. Who exactly are Rogyapas? It is a job that somebody could apply to simply because they needed money and had no qualms about bloody, gruesome work. In Tibetan, the word Rogyapa translates to body breaker. Within Tibet's traditional caste system, Rogyapas are a caste relegated to the very bottom rung of the social ladder, beneath serfs and servants. They're quite similar to the untouched elite caste found historically in the Hindu caste system. In this way, the work that Rogyapas do is hereditary, inherited down from father to son. Herbert Passan, a scholar of East Asia, wrote this about Rogyapas in a 1955 article about Tibetan castes. Reports from Tibet frequently make reference to an outcast group known as the Rogyapas that live in a segregated quarter on the southern outskirts of the Holy Inner Circle, the link core of the capital city of Lhasa. So far as can be determined, their number is somewhat over 1,000. They perform a number of menial services of an especially defiling character, which, as in the other cases we've been discussing, center around blood, death, and dirt. They act as general scavengers. They are slaughterers. They are charged with the disposal of corpses. They have the responsibility of cleaning carcasses of dead animals from the streets and public places. Their remuneration comes from the fees for their services, as well as from begging, in which they seem to have special rights. They can also be called upon to search for escaped criminals. Criminals of vagabonds who can not be returned to their original home are often assigned over to the charge to live in their community. Although Passon's text should be taken with a grain of salt, we see in other sources as well that just like the Sin Eaters, Rogapas are pariahs from the rest of society. Historically, Rogapas also worked other jobs deemed unfit for members of polite society, like executioners, bounty hunters, and concubines. From the translation of their name, though, we can see that disposing of corpses was their defining identity in Tibetan society. Tibetan collective history holds that Rogyapas are descendants of an ancient wandering people who settled into Tibetan society long ago and began working jobs that other Tibetans would shirk away from. Popular opinion also holds that Rogyapas are not Buddhist, that they worship the obscure gods of prehistoric Tibet. Tibetan Buddhists themselves are not allowed to handle the bodies of dead things in the same way Rogyapas do adding an element of religious alienation to the existing cultural divide between Rogyapas and the rest of society. In the villages that they live and work, locals often regard Rogyapas as spiritually polluted because of their line of work, as well as having the ability to pollute others by their presence. For this reason, Rogyapas live on the outskirts of villages, separated from the distrustful residents whose bodies they prepare to move on from the material world. In this dichotomy, they are both part of the community as workers who do an important service that no one else is trained or willing to do, as well as not part of the community as ancient outcasts whose work corrupts the human spirit. There does, however, seem to be a sense of community shared between Rogyapas. They work and live in groups with one another, and their hereditary status likely means that rich family ties and connections color everyday life for them. While they work on lonely mountaintops, slicing human skin and flesh to an audience of interested onlookers and ravenous birds, perhaps they joke and laugh with each other, knowing that tonight they will be a little bit richer and happier for all their labor. As they smash human bones and grind them into dust, Perhaps they take pride in knowing that, unlike so many of us, they are active participants in this endless, eternal life cycle that runs through nature.
Despite the difference between these two examples in time, space, and religious thought, we can see that outcasts are often tasked with jobs relating to death. Oddly, in our moment of grief and mourning, we put our trust that our loved ones will move on into the hands of people who we would cross the street to avoid in everyday life. Sin eaters provided villagers with the consolation that their loved ones had moved on to a heavenly paradise, yet were shunned, feared, and treated like devil worshippers by those that used their services. Rogyapas rid the earth of an empty husk and made sure that a person's last action was one of generosity, yet were seen as progressively corrupted by the bloody work they did. Regardless of your opinion on death, perhaps it is our nature not to trust someone whose livelihood revolves around a concept that is often depressing, gruesome, or terrifying to us. Next time you think of what will happen to you after you die, I hope you think of people throughout history like Sin Eaters and Rokiapas, who make sure that wherever we're going, we'll get there fast. Thank you so much for listening to the first episode of Worst Job Ever. This episode was so much fun for me to research and write, and I really hope you liked it. My apologies if it was a little bit depressing. Other episodes will probably be more lighthearted. But I think it's pretty important to tell the stories of these people and think about what they do. If you like what you heard, you can like us on Facebook at Worst Job Ever, or you can find us on Twitter at Worst Job Ever Pod. That's W-O-R-S-T-J-O-B-E-V-E-R-P-O-D. Please let us know what you think, and if you liked today's episode, please come back for more when our next episode is released. Our amazing theme music was made by Reishi. You can find more of his work at soundcloud.com slash Beats. That's soundcloud.com slash R-E-I-S-H-I-M-A-K-E-S-B-E-A-T-Z. Our lovely cover art was created by Brayden Hinkle. Learn more about Brayden and check out more of his art on his Twitter page at VeryBigFriend. The amazingly talented Simone C was our social media manager. As always, this episode is written and produced by yours truly. Thank you to WAOX for making this possible. I hope you join me next time on my journey through history's worst jobs. Goodbye.